0: Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christoginia's Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, January 8th, 2022. Right now, once again, it is Wednesday morning, and we have our friend Truthvids here with us to discuss his 100 proofs that the Israelites were white. This is part 67 of this series. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. And thank you for listening. In recent presentations in this series, we hope to have answered the questions, what is the church and what is a saint? From a biblical perspective, that the church is the collective of the children of Israel in the world. That a church is properly a gathering or community community of those same people as Christians the church is the collective of the children of Israel a church is a gathering or community of those same people as Christians that's the important distinction there and that those same people are also the saints regardless of whether they profess to be Christians saints are not something which a pope designates. Saints are the people whom Yahweh God has already separated or distinguished from all of the world's other peoples. Then, since Christ and his apostles had used these terms in relation to white Europeans, we see that the ancient Israelites must have been white because it was in the Old Testament that both the church and the saints were designated by Yahweh God, and Christ was the embodiment of promises made to them, which are found throughout the words of the prophets. So our next discussion is that very same thing, the words of the prophets. Truth is, thank you for being here once again.
1: Hey Bill, thanks for me. Yeah, so here we're on to um, the words of the prophets. Some some of these we've we've mentioned throughout the proofs, but uh, here we can compile it all into one proof. And what we'll see is this is basically what all um, like modern denominations, churches, and uh, any kind of Bible teachers basically avoid. Right? They never really do extensive um, studies and teachings of the prophets and how it all leads into the new testament right unless it just suits them the odd verse here and there they're mostly just focused on this universal christianity which is only from the new testament with all distortions right but if you properly study it you'll find that all the pro- all the prophecies and and the prophets and uh, everything yahweh says in the old testament is all about the new testament right and you can't have the new testament without the old testament And basically, once you realize this, you realize that it's the same people in the New Testament and the old nothing ever changed. It's always and only ever about the Israelites and everything that's going to happen to them. And if you really study it, then you're going to realize that they have to be the European people, right? Um, And that's essentially what these hundred proofs are about. And this should prove it as well, right, Bill? Well,
0: absolutely. The, The interconnections between the New Testament... And the prophets, from the New Testament itself, from the words of Christ and the apostles, cannot be refuted. And it's very clear that throughout the prophets, even the New Testament is a matter of prophecy. And all of the promises are for the very same people with whom that old covenant at Mount Sinai was made. It's irrefutable. You really have to be a dishonest corrupter of words and meanings in order to come to the conclusions which modern denominational churches and the Roman Catholic Church have held as doctrines for now for 15 or 16 centuries. But that was not Christian doctrine in the first century first century Christians were persecuted. They were practically persecuted out of existence, and all of a sudden, a new theology arose, a replacement sort of theology. And that was not what the apostles were teaching, not at all. So today, we are going to review some of that. Here, I may have researched statistics on how many times the prophets were cited in the New Testament, which is well into the hundreds. But I chose not to do that. Instead, I chose to focus on illustrating a handful of important examples. I don't know if you have anything to add before we begin here. Probably not. I'm sorry. While some of the books of the 16 prophets found in our Bibles are rather concise and deal with limited subject matter. Others are quite expansive and prophecy things which had occurred over many centuries. An example of a book of prophecy with limited subject matter is Jonah, is a perfect example of that. An example of an expansive book of prophecy, of course, is Isaiah, or even Jeremiah, or Daniel, or Ezekiel, or Hosea, and and even some of the other minor prophets. In their own right, David and Solomon were also prophets, as were Moses and Samuel. But here we shall deal mainly with the later prophets, those who wrote in the period of the divided kingdom, which is all of the books that are collectively known as the books of the prophets. Generally, nearly all of those prophets treat a common theme, that the children of Israel would be punished and put away by Yahweh their God for their disobedience and that at a later time they would be reconciled to their God through a promised Messiah and a promised new covenant. So where we see an introduction to the birth of John the Baptist and the subsequent birth of Christ, the Messiah, in Luke chapter 1 there is an announcement made by Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, who was also a Levitical priest, where we read from verse 67, and his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Now. Now. In the mind of Zechariah, at that time, as he uttered those words, his people were the children of Israel, the Old Testament children of Israel, and nobody else. So he continues, And has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, which had been since the world began. Now, that word world does not mean the planet. It is much better translated as society. Since the society began, which is ostensibly the society of the children of Israel, who, when Abraham had inherited the nations, had formed the modern world of that time Even if the average Christian doesn't understand that, we have already, we have already exposited here the history which helps to prove it. That's what happened. And that before the world began, or since the world began, that is what the writers of our scripture, the ancient Hebrews and Israelites, had believed. The establishment of their society which happened at Mount Sinai. So since the establishment of the Society of the Children of Israel at Mount Sinai, Yahweh God was speaking these things by the mouth of his holy prophets. And he continues and says, Zechariah continues and says, exactly what those holy prophets were speaking that we should be saved, we, meaning those children of Israel that Yahweh God had visited and redeemed, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us. Two, and, and now he gives the reason for that salvation, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, not the covenant known as the Levitical or Sinai covenant, the old Levitical covenant, not that covenant. He now explains which covenant? The oath which he swore to our father Abraham, that he would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. So Zechariah saw the children of Israel in his time as being in the hands of their enemies. In holiness and righteousness before him, all the days of our life, and thou, child, speaking of his son John the Baptist, shall be called the prophet of the highest. For thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. So Zechariah is recognizing the prophecies concerning a messenger which would come before Christ and before the face of the Lord. That is a reference to Christ, who wasn't born yet, who was about to be born, perhaps about six months later than John the Baptist to give knowledge of salvation unto his people, not unto any other people, unto a specific people by the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of our God whereby the dayspring from on high has visited us to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his showing unto Israel. So, in the Gospel according to Luke, The very foundation of Christianity and purpose of Christ is that God would fulfill the promises made to Abraham for which the children of Israel had been explicitly chosen by him many centuries before, while also fulfilling the mercy promised to the fathers or ancestors of the children of Israel in the time of Christ and announcing to them the knowledge of their salvation and the forgiving of their sins. As we had discussed much earlier, from the words of the prophet Isaiah in part 59 of this series, where we discussed the blindness of Israel. According to the prophet, it was the same children of Israel in captivity who were sitting in darkness and who were promised light in the gospel of Christ. So every point in the announcement of the purpose of the Christ by Zacharias shows that his purpose is for the children of israel alone i don't know if you have yep. a comment yes
1: yeah, so it's just very simple that basically all israel are scattered christ regathers them and then we're going to essentially rebuild the, the same civilization right under christianity but we're still under the laws but this time we have um, a bit of experience. We can look back and learn lessons, you know, from the kingdom, like the sin of, um, you know, King David or the prophets or this. So, so we can actually build an even better kingdom, right? Because we have some learning experience, and uh, it's it's essentially that, right? It's it's not what people twist it and somehow change it all. That there's no ground at all, and it's very obvious that it's just the same people, right?
0: Well, absolutely, and and a lot of denominational Christians or, or people that claim to be Christians, they they might say, oh, that's Luke. Oh, that doesn't have a second witness or, or this or that. Well, it does have a second witness and a third and a fourth and a fifth and a sixth, and it's all in the words of the prophets. The apostles preached consistently among them all the need to uphold the words of the prophets, that Christ had come to fulfill the words of the prophets. So the prophets themselves are witnesses in support of every one of Zechariah's words here. Simply because Matthew or Mark did not record that same particular event doesn't mean that it isn't true, doesn't mean that it doesn't belong in Scripture. Matthew and Mark also indicated in their own ways, in their own accounts, that Christ had come but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel, as we see in Matthew chapter 15. And there are even other ways that Matthew and Mark both elucidate that, and so does John in his own way. So just because this one account is not repeated elsewhere doesn't mean that it's not true. It is true. Because Zechariah was merely quoting from the words of the prophets. In this case, from Isaiah and from Malachi. He was paraphrasing and citing them both.
1: Yeah, most people are trapped because they're trapped into thinking um, the Jews are Israel. Then they look at the prophecies and think, well, it can't only be Israel because it's clearly not only the Jews, right? And that shows you, you have to understand both who we are and, and who they are, and only then will it all click and make sense, right? Absolutely. And, and that's
0: another challenge. But these Jews are not who they say they are, and, and we've demonstrated that on, on many occasions. So, at the beginning of his ministry, as it was recorded by Matthew, at the beginning of the ministry of Christ, as it was recorded by Matthew, In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, Christ himself is portrayed as having declared, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Then later, in Matthew chapter 22, a lawyer challenges Christ and asks, Master, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, quoting the King James Version, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. But like Greek, the Hebrew language had several words with different meanings which were all translated as neighbor. So, one word or another translated as neighbor appears frequently in Scripture, until the concept of neighbor is defined in Leviticus chapter 19, where we also find the very law which Christ had cited there. And it says, Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, I am Yahweh. This is the only place where that law is found in Scripture. And therefore Christ must have also used the term neighbor in that same context to refer to one of the children of thy people. Therefore, according to Christ, the second most important commandment in the law is that the children of Israel love their own people. And the prophets only dealt with the children of Israel in a positive sense. They dealt with other nations But those nations were always being warned, admonished, and the future which they had was always going to be one of destruction and never one for good or for being edified. A common misunderstanding reflected in the doctrines of the denominational churches is that in Christ, meaning in the crucifixion and the resurrection, all of the words of the prophets are fulfilled. They cite Matthew chapter 26 in reference to this, where we read in part, But all this was done, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. However, while Christ had to be crucified in order for the scriptures to be fulfilled, that act alone does not mean that all the scriptures were fulfilled when Christ was crucified, which is a ridiculous inversion of the original meaning of his words. For example, there is the destruction of Jerusalem and the fall of Rome, as they were foretold by the prophet Daniel. And none of those things were fulfilled by the time when Christ was crucified. Many other things had also not yet been fulfilled, which describe the fate of the children of Israel, or the day of the wrath of Yahweh, at which he takes vengeance upon his enemies. The wording of Luke is more precise. For example, in Luke chapter 18, where Christ knew that he had to go to Jerusalem to be crucified, and this is described by the Apostle, where he wrote, Then he took unto him the twelve, and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and all the things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. So there what Christ had meant is explained more, more fully all the things written in the prophets, yes, concerning the Son of Man. Then later, where the resurrected Christ had encountered the men on the road to Emmaus, in Luke chapter 24, and upon his having spoken to them, Luke wrote, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning Himself. Later on, in that same chapter where he is with the rest of his disciples, we read, And he said unto them, These are the words which I spoke unto you, while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses, and in the prophets, and in the Psalms concerning me. So while there are many things in Moses and the prophets concerning Christ, and those things were fulfilled, the things concerning the children of Israel were not all fulfilled at that time. And Christ himself later deals with many of those same things in the Revelation. For example, the future invasion of the lands of Israel By the hordes of Gog and Magog, which were described in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39, are also described in a very similar fashion in Revelation chapter 20. So there's a perfect example of something in the words of the prophets which were not yet fulfilled at the time of Christ, but then you also have the destruction of Jerusalem in Daniel chapter 9, the fall of Rome in Daniel chapter 7, and and many other things which are prophesied in Daniel chapter 7 which were not fulfilled by the time of Christ. So in Acts chapter 13, which describes events which took place Sometime, sometime between 44 and 48 AD. Acts chapter 12 is the death of ends with the death of Herod Agrippa I, and we know from history that that had happened in 44 AD. So in Acts chapter 13, the teachings of Paul of Tarsus in relation to the gospel are illustrated, where we read, and I'll start at verse 16. Then Paul stood up, and beckoning with his hand, said, Men of Israel, and ye that fear God, give audience. The God of this people of Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with a high arm he brought them out of it. Then, after a brief overview of the history of ancient Israel, it continues and says, in relation to David, Of this man's seed has God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a Savior, Jesus. When John had first preached, before his coming, the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, not to anybody else, And as John fulfilled his course, he said, "'Who do you think I am? I am not he, but behold, there comes one after me whose shoes of his feet I am not worthy to loose. Men and brethren, this is Paul addressing these people, men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham and whosoever among you feareth God.' To you is the word of this salvation sent. For they that dwell at Jerusalem, and their rulers, because they knew him not, nor yet the voices of the prophets which are read every Sabbath day, they have fulfilled them in condemning him. The phrase, whosoever among you, is not describing aliens, but rather it describes the pious of the children of the stock of abraham the people who were dwelling in jerusalem knew neither god nor the prophets because they were edomites and not israelites so they had fulfilled the prophets by killing christ later on at the council of jerusalem in acts chapter 15 which most likely transpired in 48 ad We read where Paul and Barnabas described their missionary journey to Europe to the other disciples, and Luke wrote, Then all the multitude kept silence and gave audience to Barnabas and Paul, declaring what miracles and wonders God had wrought among the nations by them. It says Gentiles in the King James Version. That is a a poor translation. And after they had held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon, meaning Simon Peter, had declared how God at first did visit the nations to take out of them a people for his name. And to this agree the words of the prophets, as it is written, After this will I return, and will build again the tabernacle of David, which is fallen down. And I will build again the ruins thereof. And I will set it up that the residue of men might seek after the Lord and all the nations, upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord who doeth all these things.
1: So, Bill, you can see why the teachers always avoid you know, in churches, always avoid these passages because immediately people are going to start asking uh, where are the Israelites and and why it's so essential that they have that mistranslation Gentiles because they can kind of roll with that, right, as non-Jews. Well, right, but Paul's message was exclusive to the children of
0: Israel and so was that of Peter. That they want to the denominational churches will take this word Gentiles and say, you see that? It's for everybody. But that's not what the apostles are saying at all. They're speaking to children of the stock of Abraham, telling them that the promises are explicitly for them and have been... The the promise of salvation and promises related to a Messiah have been fulfilled in Christ... And here Peter is addressing the nations upon whom the name of God is called. He's not addressing just any nations. Reading that passage carefully, it is not referring to just any nations, but to particular nations. First, David was rightfully a king over the children of Israel alone even in spite of the fact that David had subjected some of the other nations, the nations which surrounded the land of Israel, he was never their king, as they had no choice in the subjection. And they all sought to break free of him as soon as they had an opportunity. Since David was king over Israel alone, The tabernacle of David, which is restored in Christ, rules over Israel alone. And in the words of the prophet, where the promise appears, in Amos chapter 9, the prophecy is related to the promise of God, where he says, And I will bring again the captivity of my people Israel, and they shall build the waste cities, and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards, and drink the wine thereof. They shall also make gardens and eat the fruit of them, and I will plant them upon their land, and they shall no more be pulled up out of their land, which I have given to them, saith Yahweh thy God. That land is not found in Palestine, since in an earlier prophet in first Samuel chapter seven, the children of Israel were told that they would be moved elsewhere to a Place where they would live forever and not be moved again. Reading that same passage carefully, speaking of Acts chapter 15 from verses 12 through 17, it also says that these particular nations to whom the gospel would be brought fulfilled the promise in Amos that the residue of men might seek after the Lord and all the nations upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord who doeth all these things. All the nations upon whom my name is called. All of the nations which descended from the children of Israel, which by the time of Amos, the twelve tribes had already branched out into various places of Europe. Dorian Greeks, the Phoenicians of, of the western extremities of Europe, and the Scythians, the people who are being taken into Assyrian captivity. Some people had already been taken into Assyrian captivity. Others had founded other places in Europe, such as the Trojans and the Romans who descended from them. So we already had a multitude of nations which were descended from the children of Israel even at the time of Amos, even though they weren't all recorded in Scripture. The words of the prophets certainly do demonstrate that these people had already gone on their ships to Tarshish and founded colonies abroad. So Peter is actually citing that prophecy of Amos speaking about the residue of men. Only the children of Israel were ever called by the name of Yahweh. So no other nation can claim to be a nation upon whom his name is called. For example, where we read in Isaiah chapter 63, where Israel in captivity... Is portrayed as having said. Doubtless thou art our father. Though Abraham be ignorant of us, and Israel acknowledges us not, thou, O Yahweh, art our Father, our Redeemer. Thy name is from everlasting. O Yahweh, why hast thou made us to err from thy ways, and hardened our heart From thy fear, return for thy servant's sake. The tribes of thine inheritance, the twelve tribes of the children of Israel, the people of thy holiness, have possessed it but a little while. Speaking about the dominion of Israel over the Adamic world at the time, at the time of the kingdom, our adversaries have trodden down thy sanctuary. We are thine. Thou never bearest rule over them. They were not called by thy name. So we see, comparing Peter's words to the words of the prophets in Amos and in Isaiah, that only the children of Israel were ever called by the name of God. And again we read in Isaiah chapter 43, but now thus saith Yahweh, that created thee, O Jacob, the, for, the foundation of the world, that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee, I have called thee by thy name, thou art mine. Then in chapter 62 of Isaiah, concerning Zion and Jerusalem, which are metaphors for the children of Israel, Israel and Judah. And the nations shall shall see thy righteousness, and all kings thy glory, and thou shalt be called by a new name, which the mouth of Yahweh shall name, speaking to those same children of Israel. So if the gospel was to be taken to the nations upon whom my name is called, meaning the name of God, according to God himself, then the Gospel was to be taken only to the scattered children of Israel, as only they had ever had such a distinction and in Acts chapter fifteen, the apostles themselves, the apostles themselves made such a profession. I don't know how that could be any clearer
1: so so it's portraying you... Israel as um basically being forgotten and dead, and israel's calling yahweh to remember them and to come back for them right and that's exactly what christ did he accomplished all that and brought us all together right in a nutshell
0: and that's exactly what peter is explaining in acts chapter 15 and that is it
1: in a nutshell do you and, think and... um just earlier uh, a little bit earlier, where we was talking about paul and ba- ba- um barnabas sorry Uh, Explaining all the good deeds they've brought, where they've brought Christianity to nations. That was when uh, Peter and James started to really realize that the Israelites were all in Europe around that time through Paul doing all that.
0: Yes, I do believe that. I do believe that there was more to that story and that Paul had already begun to explain that to them because those men did not have that understanding when Peter received his vision in Acts chapter 10, which we are going to speak of here later this evening. But those men did have that understanding many years later when they actually wrote their epistles, and that understanding is reflected in their epistles. James addressed his only epistle, and he must have written more epistles than that but we only have that one which survived. He must have written more, but we have one epistle of James, and it's addressed to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. James was in Jerusalem for all of his life until his death in 62 AD. He may have visited Antioch. We don't really have proof of that, Paul and Barnabas had to go to Jerusalem for that council of Jerusalem in 48 AD. I date that too. And that to me says that most of the apostles were still in Jerusalem in 48 AD and not in Antioch. Otherwise, Paul and Barnabas wouldn't have had to go there to discuss this contention over whether or not Christians should be circumcised with these other apostles, with the elders of the apostles, meaning John and James and Peter. Later on, Peter is recorded as being in Antioch in Galatians chapter 2. That's probably eight years later, eight years after the Council of Jerusalem when Paul had written his epistle to the Galatians and had seen Peter in Antioch. So, There's no word of James being in Antioch at all. James must have remained in Jerusalem throughout the duration of his life. And at least from the evidence we have, and he is actually, his death is described by Flavius Josephus in a date that we can only date to 62 AD, where he was stoned by certain of the Sadducees in Jerusalem. So he must have remained there. So what I'm trying to say is that James remained in this rather hostile environment for all of this time, for practically 30 years from the crucifixion until his death, and that's probably why we only have one of his epistles, because that epistle which we do have was not written to anyone in Judea. It was written to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. And it was written in Greek, because ostensibly James understood that the people of those 12 tribes would understand Greek.
1: And um, once he was killed, that scattered a lot of the apostles, right, and Christians, that the um, Edomites really started to um, bring the hammer down on Christians, right? At least it seems so. They
0: were, but Albinus, when Albinus had come to office, he actually did punish the men who had murdered James. He didn't execute them, but he punished them, removed them from the high priesthood, and and had other actions taken against them, which suppressed their persecution of Christians, at least for a time. What really drove the Christians out of Jerusalem was the fact that they had the warnings of Christ concerning the destruction of the city. And when the Romans first besieged Jerusalem, and that siege was lifted, then they knew that they better flee. And that's probably when all the Christians had fled Jerusalem. And that was probably around... 66-67 AD then Titus came in 70 AD I don't remember the exact date of the first siege but when Titus came in 70 AD Jerusalem and the temple were all destroyed and then the Christians definitely didn't have a chance but Josephus had, had recorded that the better of the citizens had fled Jerusalem after the lifting of the first siege when the Romans besieged Jerusalem for, I think, for about three months or something like that, and then suddenly lifted the siege, the general that was in charge of that army, it was a it was a less well known general. It wasn't Vespasian or Titus, and he had lifted the siege to gone pers- to pursue something that was happening in Syria, and why he did that. There may have been a good reason, but it's not really well known to us. And Josephus describes all that. I've discussed it in more detail in other contexts. So, it seems that Christians were actually resisting the Edomite faction of the Sadducees who were attempting to destroy and persecute them. It really does, because James must have been resisting them as he was... He survived until 62 A.D. until he was killed by them. So they must have had reason for a long time for wanting to kill James, but perhaps just couldn't find a pretext under the procurators or proconsuls of Jerusalem, the governors who who governed up until the time of the death of Porcius Festus. When Festus, the same Festus that sent... Paul to Rome, suddenly died while he was in office, sometime after he sent Paul to Rome, there was a several-month period where a new governor who was named Albinus, I don't remember his first name offhand, it might have been Sergius Albinus or something like that, well, well Albinus was sent to Jerusalem, but there was that interim period of time when there was no governor, and the Sadducees could get away with anything that they wanted, or they thought they could, and they murdered James. So James must have been popular, because Albinus is recorded as having punished and censured those Sadducees for what they did, but he didn't execute them. James wasn't a Roman citizen. Being a Judean, he wasn't a Roman, so... so it seems that he censored them for political reasons to satisfy the people that had complained about the murder of James. More than he censored them for reasons of Roman justice and righteousness because they weren't Roman citizens. And the Romans had a different attitude towards non-citizens than they had towards citizens, which is why Paul of Tarsus, had to be sent to Rome when he appealed to Caesar, whereas a non-citizen would not have had that option and would be condemned in Judea, and that's why Christ himself was condemned in Judea. He couldn't appeal to Caesar. He wouldn't have wanted to, but he couldn't have if he wanted to, if that makes sense, I hope. Anyway... After Peter's words at the Council of Jerusalem, the Epistle to the Romans was written nearly a decade later, in 57 AD. And in Romans chapter 15, Paul declared that now I say that Jesus Christ, quoting the King James Version again, was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God, to confirm the promises made under the fathers. And that the nations might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, For this cause I will confess to thee among the nations and sing unto thy name. Yet only the children of Israel were ever promised mercy. The children of Israel were the subject of that statement, of, of that statement in in prophecy that for this cause I will confess to thee. And only they ever had an expectation of mercy throughout all of the words of the prophets. So we read in Isaiah chapter 14 in part, for Yahweh will have mercy on Jacob and will yet choose Israel, and set them in their own land. Then in Romans chapter 16, Paul wrote, Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel, and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, and we'll speak about this mystery a little later, which was kept secret since the world began, but now is made manifest. In other words, there is no more mystery. It's now made manifest. And by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, made known to all nations, or all the nations properly, for the obedience of faith. Throughout the later chapters of Isaiah, There are many promises of mercy to Israel in captivity. Mercy is also promised to the children of Israel in captivity in Jeremiah chapters 30, 31, 33, all in relation to the new covenant. These same promises are found in Ezekiel chapter 39, Daniel chapters 4 and 9, throughout Hosea, Micah, and Zechariah, but nowhere in the law or the prophets is any place, is any statement where such mercy is extended to any other race or nations, period.
1: So, Bill, if the world is when um, Sinai, at Sinai, when the law was created, that's when our world started, right, And ignoring the other Adamic nations, then already there was a mystery because some of the uh, Israelites, like the Danas, had already gone off to Greece, right, so they already were israelites off somewhere but but they didn't know where right at that time
0: right the danins the trojans that there were colonies that came from the children of israel who fled egypt by water by sea and we don't find any description of that in the bible we do find a description of that in the Library of History, the words of the historian Diodorus Siculus, who was citing authors much more ancient than himself. And I've cited that here in the early portions of these proofs. So we could see that in history, but we can't really see it in in the Bible itself, except in certain prophecies, we see glimpses of it. That's why it's a mystery. But Paul of Tarsus had come along to reveal that mystery by putting the New Testament covenant gospel message in the perspective of the ancient history of the children of Israel. That was his purpose. He knew he knew the classical histories. He was educated in them where the other apostles were not. And he knew where to bring the message because he knew the classical histories and he cited them quite often. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul wrote about how they were being reconciled to God in Christ. And then he said, So therefore, you are no longer strangers and sojourners, but fellow citizens of the saints and of the household of Yahweh, being built upon the foundation of the ambassadors and the prophets, Yahshua Christ being the cornerstone himself, I'm citing the Christogenian New Testament here, in which you also are being built together into an abode of Yahweh in spirit. So if the need for and the promises of that reconciliation are not found in the words of the prophets, then one has no place in Christ. It's that simple. If you're not found, if your ancestors are not found as being the recipients of these promises, in the words of the prophets, then you have no place in Christ whatsoever. Otherwise, how could you claim to be built on the foundation of the ambassadors, or apostles, and the prophets? Yet Paul announced to the nations of Europe that these things were for them. There he is addressing Ephesians. As for the revelation of the mystery which Paul had mentioned in Romans chapter 16, he explains it in Ephesians chapter 3, where he wrote, For this cause I, Paul, captive of Christ Yahshua, on behalf of you of the nations... If indeed you have heard of the management of the family of the favor of Yahweh, which has been given to me in regard to you, seeing that by a revelation the mystery was made known to me, he is speaking about his own background in in historical knowledge, but Paul also had an education in Scripture, at the feet of Gamaliel in Jerusalem as a young man. And through that knowledge which he had, that is how this revelation was made known to him. Once he realized, as Christ had told him, as he recorded in Acts chapter 9 and in later chapters of Acts, where he recounted his conversion on the road to Damascus, that he was being sent to the nations and kings of the sons of Israel, that he was being commissioned to take the gospel to far-off places because they were of the sons of Israel. Paul must have been able to reconcile his historical knowledge, and his scriptural knowledge to realize the fulfillments of the promises to Abraham that his seed would become many nations, which he describes in Romans chapter 4 explicitly, and again in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and again in Galatians chapter 3. Some passages in in Galatians are badly mistranslated, but Paul explains it in those three places. He reveals that mystery. So it's no longer a mystery if we'd only accept the words of Paul. And we could put themselves, we could put those words together for ourselves with the words of the prophets Jeremiah, where where he was told to address the children of Israel in the north, and we could see who was in the north in Jeremiah's time, and we could track their migrations through history into Europe, and we could understand that this is the location and the identity of the children of Israel taken into Assyrian captivity, hundreds of thousands of them. There were hundreds of thousands of them taken into Assyrian captivity. There were 200,000, there were over 200,000 people of Judah alone, one tribe alone taken into Assyrian captivity, not to mention all of the other northern ten tribes and Benjamin. Going back to Ephesians, just as I had briefly written before in a now lost epistle, Besides which reading, you are able to perceive my understanding in the mystery of the anointed. Paul is using that term collectively of the children of Israel, not only of Christ specifically, which in other generations had not been made known to the sons of men, as it is now revealed in his holy ambassadors, or apostles, if you will, and prophets, the two, the apostles and the prophets have to be put together and understood together, not separately as if they had two different messages, but together as if they had one single consistent message. Those nations which are joint heirs and a joint body and partners of the promise in Christ Yahshua, through the good message or gospel of which I have become a servant in accordance with the gift of the favor of Yahweh which has been given to me in accordance with the operation of His power, the unsearchable riches of the anointed, the collective of the children of Israel to whom He is sent with this message And to enlighten all concerning the management of the household of the mystery, the children of Israel, which was concealed from the ages by Yahweh, right there in Isaiah, where we're told that the children of Israel are blind and they're sitting in darkness because they didn't know, because they didn't remember, by whom all things are established, finishing the passage. Reading that passage carefully, we see that the mystery being revealed by Paul is found in the words of both the apostles and the prophets. So, the apostles cannot be interpreted in a way that sets them against the prophets. If the prophets were teaching the fulfillment of these promises, in the literal genetic children of Israel... And then, if the apostles had brought the gospel to those same children of Israel, the twelve tribes scattered abroad, which Paul himself had often professed, that it must have been on those same terms which were spelled out in the prophets.
1: So, so the mystery is essentially just where the children of Israel are, right? That That's all it is. And um, when, like, modern day priests claim it's too complicated for us to understand they don't even actually understand it themselves right? No they don't understand it themselves they're just
0: willfully stupid they're willfully stupid. If we can prove all these things through the classics and and the gospel then they should be able to because it's their job to do it but they're willfully stupid. They're told that they can't understand in their schools. So they take it for granted that these things are a mystery and that they can't understand them. So they believe the church, the artificial church doctrines related to replacement theology. Oh, that real Israel just disappeared after the captivity. So now God accepts every believer as Israel. Well, that's a lie. The messages to all men and every believer in the New Testament are messages to all the men of Israel and every believer of Israel. They're not messages to Chinamen that they could be Israel if they believe. It's absurd. The doctrines that they have built on their ignorance, or perhaps on purposeful ignorance, are absurd. Peter did not teach any differently than Paul. Ostensibly, his epistles were written to assemblies which Paul had founded, after Paul's arrest or even perhaps after his death. So for that reason, in 2 Peter, in Second Peter, he also testified of Paul's epistles having written both of his epistles to the elect sojourners of the provinces of Anatolia, speaking of their salvation, he said in part in First Peter chapter 1, from verse 10, Concerning which preservation the prophets inquired and examined those having prophesied concerning the favor which is for you, seeking forth which things or what time the Spirit of Christ in them indicated, testifying beforehand the sufferings for Christ and the honors after these things, to whom it had been revealed that not for themselves, but for you they furnished these things, things which are now reported to you through those announcing the good message or gospel to you in the Holy Spirit having been sent from heaven which things which the messengers or angels desire to peer into the prophets never prophesied of any favor or grace as the word is translated in the King James version the word charis they never prophesied any of that except for what Yahweh God had promised to the children of Israel. So who is Peter addressing? He must be addressing Israelites. In 2 Peter chapter 3, writing to those same assemblies of Anatolia, he wrote, This is now, beloved, the second letter I write to you, so we know that the audience of the second letter is the same as the audience of the first letter, in which I arouse your pure minds with the mention, to remind of the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets, and of the commandment of your ambassadors from the Prince and Savior, I'm citing the Christagenia New Testament here, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers with scoffing, going according to their own desires, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? The second coming of Christ. The promised return of Christ. For since the fathers had fallen asleep, all things continued thusly from the beginning of creation. Here we see two important connections which are intrinsic to Peter's preaching of the gospel. First, that Christians are to be just as mindful of the words of the prophets than they are to those of the apostles. And secondly, that they all have the same fathers, the Old Testament patriarchs, in common with one another. Right until the end, Yahweh is described as the God of the holy prophets in Revelation chapter 22. So ultimately, we cannot separate the words of the prophets from the New Testament purpose of Christ. And since the prophets wrote only for and about the children of Israel, recording many promises which Yahweh God made with Israel alone than where Christ professed that I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. We cannot possibly imagine that he was speaking of some different Israel. The Roman Catholic and Greek Orthodox and all other so-called churches, which are not really churches at all, have been built upon lies. Since they are all essentially idolatrous pagan and worldly institutions, true Christians are told to come out from among them. We will discuss that shortly. Before we know who to come out from among, there is another important concept to understand, and that is who God has cleansed. So we will
1: return to the words of Peter. So, so, Bill, when Peter's talking about the fathers that have fallen asleep, he's obviously not talking about Adam and, and Noah or, or, and, um, you know, the three sons. He's actually talking about the 12 patriarchs from uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, right? That's what he means. And once again, he also calls that the beginning of creation, right? Well, well, right. And I didn't really
0: get into it here, and I would have gone off on another long literary pursuit and and digression, but when Christ had cited a passage in Isaiah, and and let me pull this up, okay, Christ, when he gave the purpose of his own ministry, which I didn't get into here, in Luke chapter 4, as he's standing in a synagogue in Nazareth. He reads from the book of Isaiah. He was called to read and he asked to read from a scroll of Isaiah and one of the passages that he quoted is from Isaiah chapter 61 verses 1 and 2 and he quoted the entirety of verse 61, and then he inserted another passage, I believe from Isaiah chapter 58, into that, that was related to the same thing. And then he said, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, which is Isaiah chapter 61, verse 2. And he stopped there. He didn't finish it. If he'd have finished it, he would not have properly explained why he came at that time. And we are promised another, a second coming, a return of Christ. And this promises throughout the gospel and the revelation where he will finish the task. So the entire verse reads, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all that mourn. So he came his first time to die on a cross so that he could redeem the children of Israel from the punishments of the law. He couldn't execute that day of vengeance. When he returns, it's to execute the day of vengeance. And that's described especially in Revelation chapter 19 but it's mentioned many other times in the law, the prophets, and in the promise that we see in that very same passage of Zechariah, which I cited at the beginning this evening, that we would be saved from our enemies. Well, we would be saved from our enemies if we would only obey Christ, but we still haven't obeyed him. He will return with his for his day of vengeance, it won't be pretty. That's a whole nother story. I, 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 I would tarry a long time to get into all of that now. But that's the promise that we have today. But as Paul had said in his second epistle to the Corinthians, we have no share in destroying our enemies until our own obedience is fulfilled and And all through history, we've accepted these Jews, we've accepted their lies, we've accepted the Antichrist, and the apostles themselves told us not to have anything to do with them, and we're going to get into that when we discuss proofs eighty six and eighty seven next week. but for now, we should speak about what God is cleansed. I don't know if you have anything else
1: yeah there's there's so much confusion around all this right and and um it's pretty simple right um uh, initially uh, you had the levitical um you know rituals where you had to cleanse the um i'd, I'd have to go over it again but you cleanse the sacrifice and then you cleanse the people and then they were cleansed right and that's why christ had to be baptized and why all of um, the israelites there had to be baptized right there would have been levites so that they were cleansed for the sacrifice right but after that Um, once Christ died, he essentially cleansed all of Israel, right? But he didn't cleanse a nigger or or a kike or anyone else. It was only Israel, and, and that's basically it in a nutshell, right? Absolutely. He cleansed who he promised to cleanse. These
0: understandings of these things in the New Testament cannot be separated from the words of the prophets. So let's go back to Peter. Returning to the book of Acts in chapter 10, The apostle Peter was in Joppa, praying on the roof of the house of Simon the tanner. Doing that, Peter was shown a vision of beasts. And as the vision is completed, and in what had happened to Peter immediately thereafter, it is revealed that where Peter was commanded to arise and eat certain unclean beasts, the actual signification was that he should not reject certain men who were considered unclean by the Judeans so we read in verse 14 but Peter said not so Lord for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean and then we see the response in verse 15 and the voice spoke unto him again the second time what God has cleansed that call not thou common. So Peter was concerned, Peter was concerned with things both common and unclean. In the answer, we see that Yahweh God was concerned only with what is common. This is an important distinction which is missed. By denominational churches and translators, especially as it relates to men, what is common or profane, as the word "coinus" was sometimes translated, referred to things which were soiled or tainted, but which could be cleansed and ceremonially purified by a priest. But what is unclean, or akathartis, is unclean according to the law, and it can never be cleansed. For example, swine is unclean, according to the law, and no ceremony or cleansing ritual could ever make it clean so that it could be sacrificed on the altar or eaten by men. There's no baptism ceremony where you could turn a pig into a cow and eat it. However, cattle, which are clean, but which were mishandled in some manner, may be considered common or profane, and a priest could purify them, and sanctify them in a ritual cleansing. In the Old Testament, we see that the children of Israel were made clean from their sins on the Day of Atonement. In Leviticus chapter 16, from verse 30 For on that day shall the priest make an atonement for you to cleanse you that you may be clean from all your sins before Yahweh It shall be a sabbath of rest unto you and ye shall afflict your souls In other words they should fast and not take care, take part in any enjoyments or luxuries and ye shall afflict your souls by a statute forever and the priest whom he shall anoint and with whom you shall he shall and whom he shall consecrate to minister in the priest's office in his father's stead in other words the high priest shall make the atonement and shall put on the linen clothes even the holy garments and he shall make an atonement for the holy sanctuary and he shall make an atonement For the tabernacle of the congregation, or the church, if you will, the assembly of the children of Israel, and for the altar, and he shall make an atonement for the priests and for all the people of the congregation. And this shall be an everlasting statute unto you, to make an atonement for the children of Israel for all their sins once a year, as he did And he did, and he did as Yahweh commanded Moses, referring to the actions of Aaron the high priest. Once the children of Israel were put off in divorce in the captivities, the priests could not make any such atonement. There was no more atonement for the sins of the children of Israel. Especially once the temple was destroyed and the Ark of the Covenant disappeared forever, no matter where we want to believe where it went. That there are indications that it was buried by Jeremiah the prophet, that's fine. There are other indications it may have been stolen and melted down by the Babylonians, that's fine. It doesn't matter what we believe happened to it it was never seen again after the destruction of the temple in 585 B.C. So even through the entire second temple period in Jerusalem, when a second temple existed, the Ark of the Covenant was not there. It was never mentioned again after 585 B.C. It was gone. So even though The high priests in Jerusalem sort of went through the motions for 550 years until the crucifixion. They couldn't make a proper atonement for sin. So, not even the Judeans had any atonement for sin. Because if you read the law, the atonement for sin, as Paul described in the epistle to the Hebrews, came when the high priest sprinkled the blood of the sacrifices onto the mercy seat of Christ, which was atop the Ark of the Covenant in the first temple. Well, it was gone. So how could that atonement be made? The, the, the ritual could not be completed. So that being said, once the children of Israel were put off in divorce in the captivities, the priest could not any longer make such an atonement. Yet, in the words of the prophets, we see the promises of God to cleanse the children of Israel in the lands of their captivity. One place this is found is in Jeremiah chapter 33, where we read from verse 7, And I will cause the captivity of Judah and the captivity of Israel to return, and will build them as at the first, and I will cleanse them from all their iniquity, whereby they have sinned against me, and I will pardon all their iniquities, whereby they have sinned, and whereby they have transgressed against me. Now, they didn't necessarily have to return to Palestine, but they had to return to God. They had gone off into paganism, which is why they were being sent into captivity, In Daniel chapter 9, the prophet laments the destruction of Jerusalem, and we read in part from verse 11, Yeah, all Israel have transgressed thy law. Now Daniel was in Babylon as a captive when he was writing this. Even by departing, that they might not obey thy voice, therefore the curse is poured upon us and the oath that is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, because we have sinned against him. Daniel is talking about the punishments for disobedience, which are found in Deuteronomy chapter 28, and also in Leviticus, I believe it's in chapter 26, I I think. Then, where his prayer is answered in that chapter, Daniel chapter 9, and Yahweh informs him of the fate of Jerusalem, we read in part, Seventy weeks are determined upon my people and upon my holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity. That reconciliation has to be with the same people, with the people of Israel that Daniel had mentioned earlier, It couldn't be for anybody else. Nobody else needed to be reconciled for their iniquity because they were never chosen, put under the law, and given God's name in the first place. And to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the Most Holy. The reconciliation which Christ had made for iniquity was to release the children of Israel, from their condemnation under the law by dying in their place. As Paul later explained in Romans chapter 7, thereby coming a propitiation for their sins, as Paul later explained in Hebrews chapter 9 and John in chapter 2 of his first epistle that's the reconciliation um, that's the cleansing that's what's happening here that's the words of the prophets
1: it's just like um in egypt where um they painted blood on the doors uh you know just like there it was only for the children of israel right N- nobody else and, and it's always um the same right that was kind of a foreshadowing as well right
0: absolutely the blood on the doors of the lentils in egypt was a foreshadowing of the blood of christ Covering those same children of Israel. It doesn't cover anybody else because he said so, not because we say so. So we see this again in Ezekiel chapter 37. And we've cited this passage here before, but not in this particular context, because this stands as a proof that the apostles going to white Europeans, the Israelites must have been white because the apostles were dealing with, according to their own words, they were dealing with the same people who were the subject of these Old Testament prophets. So in Ezekiel chapter 37, after it is prophesied that Israel and Judah would be made into one stick, we read, And say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen, whither they be gone. Now, in Ezekiel's time when he wrote this, most of Israel and Judah had already been taken into Assyrian captivity. Some of Judah, including Daniel, and many of the chief men of Jerusalem, had already been taken into Babylonian captivity. Daniel is sitting in Babylon. Around the same time that Ezekiel wrote this, Daniel is writing his book of prophecy, or doing the things which are recorded in his book of prophecy. Jeremiah is also writing. But Ezekiel, if you look at Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel himself is with the captives. So he was evidently taken into Babylonian captivity at the same time that Daniel was. However, they were in two different places in Babylon. Ezekiel says that he is with the captives in Ezekiel chapter 1, but Jeremiah is not. He stayed in Jerusalem until the end, until the city was destroyed by the Babylonians for, I think, 12 more years at least from the time that Daniel and Ezekiel were taken to Babylon for at least 12 more years Jeremiah stayed in Jerusalem and dealt with the people in Jerusalem so Ezekiel is writing this probably at the same time or near the same time that Daniel was writing so we read Ezekiel speaking about Israel and Judah in captivity (coughs) I'm sorry I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen whither they be gone, meaning the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the, the the Medes and the Persians and the other places where the Assyrians had planted them, northern Syria and elsewhere, and will gather them on every side and bring them into their own land. Now that land was not in Palestine. That land is another land that they were given. The land mentioned in First Samuel chapter 7, I'm sorry, Second Samuel chapter 7, in verse 10, that land. And I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel, the land of their future, the land they were going to be brought to. And one king shall be king to them all, and there shall be no more two nations. Neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms any more at all. Neither shall they defile themselves any more with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions. But I will save them out of all their dwelling places, wherein they have sinned, and will cleanse them. So they shall be my people, and I will be their God. So Israel is promised to be cleansed, and Israel is what God had cleansed. When God said to Peter, do not call common what God has cleansed, he's talking about these promises found that we have just cited here in Jeremiah, in Daniel, and in Ezekiel. Then as Ezekiel proceeds, this cleansing is further connected to a prophecy of Christ. And David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall All have one shepherd, they shall all also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. And Christians have done that. Not perfectly, but they have basically kept all of the basic commandments. Ever since these European pagans who descended from the ancient Israelites had become Christians. And they shall dwell in the land that I have given unto Jacob my servant, wherein your fathers have dwelt. And they shall dwell therein, even they and their children, and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them, and will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Yeah, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And the nation shall know that I, Yahweh, do sanctify Israel. Now, sanctification is the act of ritual cleansing. When my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forevermore. When you sanctify something, you are ritually cleansing it and setting it aside for special purposes. Just as Isaac was sanctified on the altar by Abraham and became the property of God. When the children of Israel were put off into captivity and alienated from Yahweh for their sins, from that time they were considered common or profane and it is they who were cleansed on the cross of Christ. But Christ did not cleanse any of the other races, which were never clean according to the law. Once this concept is understood in the Old Testament, as well as the New Testament, many of the allegories concerning Israel are also better understood. Yahweh cleansed sheep. Yahweh God would not cleanse pigs or dogs, just as he would not cleanse other races of so-called people. Now that we have seen who Yahweh had cleansed, we shall go on to discuss what the scriptures describe men whom he did not cleanse, but we will do that in our next presentation
1: just reading that um verse of Ezekiel you you can only think well who's fulfilled that that must be the Europeans right we did we did get rid of all the pagan idols and we returned to Yahweh as Christ right so it's um it just describes it perfectly uh what happened to the Europeans how they completely turned back to Yahweh right absolutely even
0: though the orthodox church and then the roman catholic church had also turned to idolatry, and never got rid of their idols, they were idols that were given a Christian facade, ultimately, in the Reformation, we did get rid of the idols, for the most part. The Lutheran Church, I believe, clings on to some of them. So ultimately, this is an ongoing process, because Christ hasn't yet set his tabernacle with us. This is an ongoing process that we are fulfilling. But only we can fulfill this. Only white European Christians can fulfill this.
1: Yeah, and it shows that prophecies are always in motion, right? Uh, e- even if um, s- some prophecies, it seems like 90% of it's fulfilled, there's still uh, you know, the last bit where he returns, right? But we are fulfilling them.
0: Absolutely. We are and we have. We've already fulfilled many aspects of it, and nobody else has.
1: And it's uh, funny that, um, you know, when Paul went out, he had a very clear understanding of Christian identity, and then it's all lost. And now, um, well, well, we never know when Christ will return, but we're close to the end, right, I, I imagine. And now we finally have the understanding once again. So we've came back to where Paul was finally, right?
0: Well, right. We absolutely believe that we are where Paul was. And we've demonstrated that in in our presentations here on mistranslations, our presentations on migrations, our presentations on the words of Paul in respect to those people in Europe, the Romans, the Corinthians, and the Galatians especially. But also this evening we saw it in Ephesians that they must have been descended from the ancient Israelites otherwise they have nothing to do with the prophets and the words of Paul are meaningless so we have to ask ourselves was Paul of Tarsus whose works take up nearly a third of our bibles between his epistles and his actions in the book of acts was were they meaningless were those things meaningless or did Paul mean what he said was Paul speaking for God? Does God mean what he said? If so, then Christian identity has to be true. And Israelites must have been white. Otherwise, we're just clowns who think that
1: our God and his apostles are clowns just like us. Yeah, and, and the fact that a furthered book is pulled to these um, lost tribes in Europe shows us that the whole bible was leading to this right to us the european people the israelites right yo yo i always had this plan right from the beginning well today we're the camp of the saints surrounded by all the other nations
0: and and only we have fulfilled that so for better or worse either side of the coin shows that white europeans are the children of israel
1: yeah because there'll be israelites But there'll also be these other people, right, which we'll get to next week, who cannot be cleansed no matter what, and who are those enemies who we will be saved from, as uh, Christ himself said, right? Absolutely.
0: Thank you for being here.
1: It's been a pleasure. Praise Yahweh, God of the camp of the saints, European people, and not the people who can't be cleansed. Praise Yahweh, and good night.